You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 493, Darkling. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at an episode of Star Trek and delve inside its subroutines to see if we can find its balance in both the darkness and the light as we determine if the episode contains any morals, meanings, or messages, and if it withstands the test of time. This week, Darkling, the one where Kess comes of age, again... And the Doctor tinkers with his programming. Again. We'll have trivia in a moment, but first a word on how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, let's talk about Darkling. We have a story by Brennan Braga and Joe Minoski, although they did pick up the pitch from outside, which was very simple in its premise, just a Jekyll and Hyde story featuring the Doctor. That, that was it. That was the idea that they ran with. So they ultimately get story credit for fleshing it out. And the teleplay duties fell specifically to Joe Minoski. And let's just say that he wanted to take things into an even weirder, darker angle for the doctor. Michael Piller stepped in, put his foot down, and curb maybe some of these stranger impulses that Joe had, probably for the best. This was directed by Alex Singer. Don't forget that he was a longtime fan of TOS, who finally got his wish when he started directing. He did six episodes of TNG and then moved over to DS9 for six more there, and then ultimately 10 on Voyager. The last episode of his that we discussed was Macrocosm. And here's a fun note about the Doctor's appearance here. Bob Picardo kept his dental appliances from the movie The Howling and used the bottom piece to change up his appearance and speech. And he also used contacts to just very subtly change the diameter of his iris. It's a, a tiny bit, but enough to make this guy look different. Let's meet our guest stars. The holodeck is populated by some new historical figures, Socrates and Tapau, uh, the Vulcan, not the band. Both were played by uncredited actors, Don Rutherford and Betty Matsushita, respectively. Don has a handful of credits to his name, including playing Titanic's Captain Smith in the 1998 Secrets Revealed show about the disaster. And Betty had multiple uncredited appearances on Star Trek as a background actor going back to TNG and through Enterprise. 
Lord Byron's hologram is portrayed by Christopher Clark. He got his on-screen professional debut here, and he has paralleled his acting career with a number of directing gigs uh, along the way, bouncing from film and TV to music production as well. Gandhi is played in all his pixels by Noel D'Souza. He was born in 1925 and started in TV in the mid-1950s. The Loretta Young Show, Jungle Jim, and even an appearance on Disney's mega-hit Zorro all show up early in his career. He kept right on working for the next seven decades, even appearing in the movie Wedding Crashers and a 2015 episode of The Big Bang Theory. Uh, our real-world Mikal Travelers are Nakan and Zahir. Stephen Davies played Nakan, and we have met Stephen twice before. Uh, while he kicked off his on-camera career in the 70s after graduating from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, he did appear on DS9 under both Bolian Makeup and Jem'Hadar in Emissary and Hippocratic Oath, respectively. And finally, Zaheer is played by David Lee Smith. Shout out to my hometown boy, also from Birmingham, Alabama. He has appeared in two David Fincher films, Fight Club and Zodiac. And he's got a strong Star Trek crossover in the 2007 film, The Man from Earth, written by Jerome Bixby and featuring Tony Todd and John Billingsley, among many others. And more recently, you can catch David in the film Mank and in the new Hawaii Five-0. It will be interesting to see the doctor waddling around with little fluffy feathers. Oh, wait, I thought this said duckling. Well, now I am disappointed. Prologue. Voyager stops by an outpost of the Mikal Travelers to get some directions and other travel tips for the next part of their journey. In a tavern, Janeway meets a verbose storyteller, Nakan, and his story of adventure is undermined by another traveler, Zahir. He's a pilot, and he's been working with Cass on a medical supply run, and he shoes away Nakan. What he has for Janeway is promise of a little more clear-headed guidance through an asteroid field and a source of virilium in the area. Cass seems pleased with her new friend. Hold that thought for later. Back on Voyager in Club Bro Med, the EMH is broadening his understanding of humanity and philosophy with encounters with people like Lord Byron, Socrates, Tapao, and Gandhi, who definitely doesn't get the spirit of Club Bro Med. The Doctor is exploring the character aspects of the greats so he can incorporate their personalities into his own, hoping to make himself more well-rounded, more relatable. Cass stops by for a visit to tell the EMH how interesting the Mikal travelers are, in particular Zahir, who she finds very interesting, a reaction that the EMH says might be best served by a cold bath. Act 1. Bilana is in sickbay after a salad she ate in the outpost didn't agree with her Klingon physiology. The doctor assesses the situation, but he's acting weird. He's touchy and smarmy and just not himself. Milana notices, and after threats to his very existence, she says she'll look into how those personality subroutines might be interacting with each other and causing some undesired character side effects. Meanwhile, 
Zahir shows Kess around a wooded area of the Traveler outpost. These two are really getting along closely. She admires his independent, wandering spirit. He admires the closeness she has with the crew of Voyager. They might find a way to spend some more time with each other. And as they get even closer, they share a kiss. But somewhere in the woods, a hooded figure is watching. Act 2. Cass beams back to Voyager around 3 a.m. It's been a good night, the kind where you lose track of time. Tuvok catches her in a corridor, reminding her of a report that's due. The doctor, too, expresses concern that Cass is slacking in her work, probably because she's distracted by... someone. Cass pushes back that she's an adult, and while she knows that he cares, her personal life is only of her concern. Later that morning, Cass visits Captain Janeway, and she says she wants to spend more time, a lot more time, with Zaheer. Maybe they could rendezvous later, or maybe Voyager isn't where she wants to spend the rest of her life. Janeway says to take some time to think about it, and her door is always open. On the surface, Zaheer provides map information for Tuvok, and in the process expresses his sincere love for Kess. Tuvok, being the good friend that he is, says he's looking out for her safety, and Zaheer insists that he'll be very careful if she comes with him. Speak of the Okampa, Kess enters, and as Tuvok leaves, she tells Zaheer she has some work to do, but she feels the importance of where they are, a crossroads in their lives. When she returns to Voyager later, Zaheer takes a walk in the woods again, but like the other night, he's being watched, and that shadowy hooded figure emerges, shoving Zaheer off the rocky ledge into a ravine. Moments later, that same hooded person walks into the outpost tavern and catches Nakan closing up for the night. When the hood comes off, the mystery man is revealed to be Voyager's own EMH, and his personality has changed for the worse. He's gruff, demanding, violent even, and threatens Nakan by forcing his hand into the fire, then demanding passage off this world. Act 3 Cass rushes into sickbay when she hears about Zaheer, looking for the EMH's help. When the doctor is activated, he's ready to go with her, but they're interrupted by Balana, who has some urgent news. The EMH program has been severely altered, and she needs to correct that pronto, so Kess will be on her own. Back in sickbay, Balana explains that all those holodeck personalities the EMH has been incorporating all have a downside. They may have been great, creative geniuses, but they also had troubling sides too which have compounded on his programming and formed their own links. She needs to do a little cleanup on his program. He deactivates himself for the procedure, but something goes wrong. He shimmers in and out of physical space, failing to deactivate, then turns an angry gaze toward Belana. In the corridor, Tuvok reports his findings to Janeway that he can't explain how there is literally no physical evidence of an attacker on Zaheer. They enter sickbay to find Milana unconscious on the floor. When they activate the EMH, he appears and mentions that Milana must still be reacting to the local vegetation, but he'll fix her right up. When Janeway and Tuvok leave, though, he flickers again and approaches the examination table with a determined, hostile look in his eye. Act 4. 
He wakes Bellana and explains what really happened. He simulated the effects of anaphylactic shock to throw off the others. This EMH is the amalgamation of all those new subroutines, the negative character attributes, and he has immobilized Bellana with the plan to force her to help him eradicate the good side of his programming. She refuses, even under threat of torture, which sends the EMH to the holodeck to try to force an answer out of those characters whose attributes he copied. Meanwhile, Tuvok is asking questions in the tavern, leaning on Nikon to see if maybe he can shed some light on Zaheer's accident. Those two didn't always get along, and proof is scarce, but an injured Zaheer says he's taking the Voyager crew to the accident site for more investigation. On the ship, Kess finds that the doctor is conspicuously missing from sickbay, but he is in the absurdist hellscape that is the holodeck now, with morphed, damaged holograms ripped apart under his inspection. This EMH is fully possessed by the dark personality traits taking on a life of their own, and Kess is horrified by what she sees. She and he both know that the doctor's original programming is in there somewhere, but this one is doing all he can to take it over. He wants what exactly? Freedom? Excitement? He's on his way by kidnapping Kess, stunning the transporter chief, and beaming away to the outpost. Act 5. The transport tripped an alert on the bridge, causing Janeway to call her away team. The EMH and Kess have beamed away, and they're using a scattering field to block attempts to trace them. Tuvok replies with worse news on top of bad. His tricorder has picked up residual holographic traces at the accident site, matching those of the doctor. So now he's suspect number one, and that reminds Janeway, oh yeah, Bolana was in sickbay. In the tavern, the EMH grows frustrated with the mobile emitter, attempting to squash the doctor's program so that those dark personality threads can live on their own unencumbered. Kess asks why he's going to such lengths, and he says he deserves to live more than the doctor. The way all these negative personality traits were suppressed by their original host was just so unfair, ignoring the truth that darkness is more fundamental than light. Then Cass gives the EMH a lesson of her own. Cooperation, kindness, these are the things that allow people to grow and thrive, what holds friends, families, and whole societies together. He can't exist without it. He needs the doctor's good qualities to be whole. Nakan comes in with some bad news. That transport he arranged in exchange for not being set on fire? Yeah, Jane weighs onto the plan and has it cordoned off. The EMH isn't going anywhere soon, and that just sends him into a rage. He grabs Kess, heads for the woods, and they are easy enough to eventually be spotted by Chakotay, Tuvok, and Zaheer, with an assist by Voyager's more powerful scanners trying to get a transporter lock. Back to the scene of the crime, the rock ledge where the EMH tried to off Zaheer, now he's threatening Kess with the same. But the doctor's programming is getting in the way. This dark side EMH starts shimmering again, glitching in and out, while the doctor's programming fights for dominance. Chakotay even offers to keep both programs running. As long as the doctor can survive, they could move the alternative personality to the holodeck. The EMH doesn't believe it, though. He threatens Kess, but even she tries to reason with him. He's been protecting her this whole time. That part of his programming is unmistakable. 
He's got one last trick, though, hurling them both off the ledge into the ravine, just as Voyager's transporters lock on and beam them to safety. Kess is okay. The EMH is back to himself. The Doctor program fully in control. Belana deletes the offending programs, and the EMH says that from now on, he'll limit broadening his program by reading a book. Belana exits, and Cass enters, saying that she reconsidered staying with Zaheer because, as her life changes, she wants to be around the friends she has. The doctor, in his awkward way, says he would miss Cass if she had gone, and she, too, says that she would have missed the doctor. The end. Nicely done, John. Let's see. Uh, I don't think that Freud himself would have any uh, uh, easy time with this type no. of psychological study. So you, you, you need Freud for this one, <laughs> I think, too. Yeah, you could use a whole army of uh, the great psychologists. Uh, but let's start from the beginning, as mm-hmm. we do. I, I like the setup on this outpost. I, it like you can tell when a show is doing a lot with very little but really creating an atmosphere like the matte paintings on like the little tavern set where they are gotta say the alien makeup is entirely too bajoran that's pretty close <laughs> like yeah. when we started i was like wait a minute did, did they come through a wormhole to the delta quadrant because yeah they kind of look familiar yeah any dangling ear jewelry and it would have been really close yeah oh totally I liked the – there was um, an extra that walked across, a female extra alien walking across the background, and I said, nothing says medieval futuristic like a test tube shot glass. I love that. And, and I, look, I, I, I am exactly that sucker who will buy the test tube shot glass. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, the story that Nikon is telling, mm-hmm. it, it sounds so much like the space slug that the Millennium Falcon encountered you right. know, <laughs> in Empire Strikes Back. I, yeah. I had to wonder if that was a little, uh, a little influence there. Space Whale and Doctor Who, too. Yes. Right? Yeah, that was a good one. He was laying it on a little thick. I'm like, look, man, like, <laughs> I don't know what your angle is, but... It's a little overacted. It was, uh, yeah. I do love the table centerpieces, the light fixtures on each of the tables. I thought those were actually oh, yeah. really well done. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And as soon as Kess enters, I mean, this is new Kess. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just dramatically. So good to see a new Kess. I wish we had a little more closure with Neelix. Stay tuned. Maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah. So the doctor says... Uh, I think I'm detecting a reaction to your recent breakup with Mr. Neelix. Yeah. I do think that we're going to be uh, addressing that yeah. because we never saw that scene. Nope. Nope. Okay. Nope. It was a weird way to shoehorn that in. Right. I got to say, on the holodeck, I'm definitely, look, given a choice, more of a Lord Byron guy than than a Gandhi guy in this instance, mm. <laughs> the way that they are portrayed here, definitely. And and I got to point out, we got the Star Trek rule, but not with a sequence of three. We we got it a little out of sequence, and they added on a fourth. So we got right. Socrates, Da Vinci, Lord Byron, T'Pau, and then Madame Curie. So I, it was fun that they, they kind of broke their own rule, but they still stuck to the rule. They just expanded the rule. Glad to see that. I like how they say T'Pau of Vulcan and like, yes. uh, uh, you know, aside from the other T'Pau's in history. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm going to have to make a correction here, John. According to yeah. Bill, Esqui- es- um, Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan, that would be Socrates and so not Socrates. Oh, thank you. Thank you very right. much for correcting me on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I really like this scene, how they play the meeting of minds between Zaheer and, and uh, Kess. Although I have to point out something when they're walking in the woods. Uh, if you're like me and you read the closed captioning, you know, at least once while watching the show, he says, quoting the, the ancients, my course is as elusive as a shadow across the sky. Mm -hmm. Okay. In the closed caption, it's elusive, I-L-L-U-S-I-V-E. Pretty sure that should be elusive, E-L-U-S-I-V-E. Fix that. Yeah. It was weird. I was like, uh -huh. oh, yeah, that's not, not quite yeah. right. Yeah. Also, what I thought wasn't quite right, again, we're on an alien planet in an alien world, but on timestamp, mm -hmm. 11 minutes, three seconds-ish. There are three full moons in the sky at varying distances. Yes. Yes, there are. I'm wondering what that would have done to human beings on that planet. Because I know what full moons do to humans on our planet. <laughs> but what would three do to humans on that planet? Or, or to their tidal patterns. Exactly. Yeah. So, I don't yeah. know. Maybe that explains some stuff with uh, Nakan. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I also love that star map effect on the rock, but... Oh, yeah. I mean, isn't it a little too maybe naive of Cass to just trust a translation without any reference? I mean, <laughs> he could have been, like, reading her a grocery list, but making it sound so romantic. And I get it. Right. You know, it's right. it's very gorgeous. It's very mystical. But yeah. it's really just pick up bread and peanut butter. <laughs> you know, it's like the, you know? the one poetic phrase that he has memorized, <laughs> and he just points to everything. Like, yeah, yeah that says that, too, of course. Look at yeah, that leaf. This is what this means. Yeah, yeah. I think of you every time I say it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I got to wonder, have we seen anybody in Star Trek yet do a walk of shame down the corridor on a starship? Uh, because... Kess has. I, yeah. and, and look, and I, and I kid, it, it's really not a walk of shame, but it, it's just fun. I love her demeanor when she comes in. By the way, hey, look, a transporter chief. Just yeah, saying. Yes. Right? Uh -huh. Yeah. With yeah, a yeah. little bit too much sideways eye. I know. To Kess, right? I Going know. back it's, to what you just said. I mean, what's up with fun. that? Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, what is Tuvok doing up at three o'clock in the morning? Just, just like walking around, checking on crew members and like reminding them about what they have due later that morning. See, Tuvok, get a life, mm -hmm. really. Like, mm -hmm. like sleep, go back to your purple, darklit chambers and meditate. Okay. Yeah. EMH. Uh, of course, this is central to the premise of the episode, but I, I, I really wonder about playing him with this jealousy, even when he's not, you know, evil EMH, but playing out that jealousy with Kess. I mean, we we have to chalk up some of it with those subroutines, but I also feel like this is a thread that they have toyed with a little bit in the past. And then they toy with again a little bit in the end. And I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not necessarily comfortable with that. Yeah, there's a, a lot to be mined here, I think, you know, for later discussion. Because yeah. he also says, although I'm not designed to act as ship's counselor, I've been programmed with enough psychological knowledge to be troubled by your behavior. So I want to maybe touch yeah. a little bit more on this later. It's kind of like he has Psychology 101, probably in one of his download yeah. modules or pre program subroutines as an emh but he could just download literally the history of psychology if yeah. he wanted to and become yeah. a counselor if he wanted to true true what i really do love is janeway's much more caring approach to Kess. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when she expresses that maybe she wants to leave. And Cass really makes this great point. She has lived a third of her life now. Yeah. Like, would you really want to spend the rest of your life on Voyager if you have that little to go? That That is such a good scene. And, you know, we, we've rarely brought up, uh, like, the Bechdel test on Mission Log. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not a perfect meter for anything but it it is worth noting here because i felt like well that scene yes you do have two women talking about a man in the respect that that zahir is part of the equation but i think much more important than that is just talking about kessa's future and her friends and her life so yes great scene and really necessary mm-hmm. <laughs> given that we just had that creepiness with uh, with the emh and more creepiness to come by the way i like that when we get down back into the tavern again i really like the look of that clear cylindrical map that yeah. Tuvok is reading so cool so yeah. cool but i'm also having trouble figuring it out like it totally depends on one perspective on how you're looking at it. I mean, space is in three dimensions. And if you're Wait. looking at it from one what? side of the cylinder and the other, <laughs> where is that? And then what's on the curve? Like, is that literally... Uh, yeah, you, it, it doesn't work, but it's cool. <laughs> no, John, it's I, I do love the map, too. And, and I, I like that not every single alien culture is going to use some type of hologram or holographic technology. But I do want to respond to what you say about space in three dimensions is that like yes. chess in three dimensions <laughs> it is it is yes okay and uh, and woe be unto you if you think two-dimensionally okay all right mm-hmm. just one yeah mm-hmm. um i mentioned it in the uh the recap but i really like that uh special effect while the emh kind of flickers and transforms like it it's an easy effect and it's pretty obvious but it's kind of perfect for what we have here I, I like that you made mention of uh, Picardo using, uh, I guess, kind of like a salvaged prop, you know, from yeah. one of his earlier performances for the I'm the Mr. Hyde version now of my EMH Jekyll, you know, when he took yeah. the hood off. Also, a little bit of a nit to pick. So in timestamp 2043, you can see the hollow emitter on the doctor's cloak, like. Um, and it's mm. it's not it's not a nit to pick now. It's a nit to pick for later because they made a very specific point to make sure that you knew that this was the Doctor, you know right. his holodeck his his hollow emitter. Yeah, uh, but it's not very consistent uh, as an yeah. application later on. Yeah, very true. I do have to wonder when that scene happens when, when you know the the cliffhanger happens and uh, the doctor well the emh in that case pushes zahir how did Kess find out about that like she was already back on voyager and zahir was alone and for that matter like where did zahir go to get help like i this is some missing information there and i also have to wonder though that with the emh doesn't voyager's computer have a data file of what the emh has been up to like balana could look in those files and she could see that his personality was changing Mm -hmm. but what about the part of the file that says almost murdered a guy yeah. Like, does that, uh, that just doesn't show up in there. I'm just wondering if, like, if all of his actions are like codes that are being updated in real time, you know, like mm-hmm. a thought pattern, mm-hmm. you know, or some type of file. Yeah. Uh, and I know this is also kind of like a small potatoes thing, but isn't it time that the crew just doesn't have to say, please activate the emergency medical holographic program? Good point. Yeah. I know that we're, we're in season three, and this, 
this is when, say, more specifically when they find Torres on the ground. And then, you know, Tuvok goes through the entire process of activating. Torres could be bleeding to death, right? Yeah. But right. do you actually have to say the entire title before the doctor <laughs> activates? What if you only say half of it and Torres bleeds out? That means the doctor isn't activated. Right. Right. I mean, even my phone has a shortcuts app. So, yeah, yeah come on. Right. Come on. Um, Interesting scene uh, when uh, the EMH is in the turbo lift and Tom Paris comes in. And I just thought, like, man, 24th century work chatter is also incredibly <laughs> banal. <laughs> just yeah. like, just like, what are you doing working? Yeah, you know? <laughs> but that said, man, Picardo is just so good as the bad version of the EMH. I mean, uh, I thought about, well, there are a lot of actors who get to do this, but like, think of Christopher Reeve as bad Superman in, when, uh, in Superman 3, which is mm-hmm. the, the whole physicality changes, the coloring changes. So many good uh, moments like that. And, you know, I think that you see more of that kind of quality in an actor when they have a stage background because you have to use mm-hmm. those subtleties yeah. in your body and posture and stuff like that. I mean, Christopher Reeve, he can change yeah. himself from meek to heroic in literally sh- a shrug of his shoulders. So and that's yeah. kind of like what the doctor does here. He does have a little bit of help, though, with those really cool contact lenses that you talked yes. about earlier. Because yes. I was looking and like, oh, they look like clear lenses with a little thicker white outline so that his uh-huh. irises become smaller. Just a little tinier, yeah. And yeah. a little bit more devious and sinister looking. So I thought that was good. Obviously, there's yeah. a little bit of five o'clock shadow at play here, too. Uh-huh. So when the evil doctor was torching Bellana, yeah, this is what I was talking about before. They made it very specific to to point out that the hollow emitter was on the doctor's cloak when he was doing oh, the bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then when he was torturing Bellana, there's no hollow emitter on his arm, which is consistent with being in medbay. But he walks right out and he's wearing it again. And yeah. I'm just. And then Tom says, hey, hollow emitter, what's going on, Doc? He's like, nothing. You know, like, it would have been nice (laughs) if he just kind of picked it up and slapped it on because there are more scenes later where he specifically is interacting with it. So it's just kind of like an assumption. And sometimes you need to actually show and not just tell. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, I got to say, like, that whole sequence of the EMH wandering the corridors to get to the holodeck, totally unnecessary. Because he, he could have just appeared there. He could have just, you know, dematerialized from sick bay and rematerialized in the holodeck. Mm. It feels a little bit like filler, but it's so good. <laughs> it's still, it's like creepy fun to see him wandering around like that. I love Socrates and Tapao playing Kalto together. And I love the messed up holograms like Socrates cut in half. That's I weird. mean, this is so weird and yeah. perfect. Yeah. That was very disturbing. Not as disturbing as the next thing I'm bringing up. So exactly what kind of band-aids are on <laughs> Zaheer's face, John? <laughs> they, oh, space band-aids. Exactly. They're in space. space band-aids. Yes, of mm-hmm. course, of course. And, and nice to see Robert Beltran make his entrance in the scene uh, some 40 minutes in. Yeah, finally, yeah, yeah. I do love the way that when he's making the big beam out that the doctor just throws the uh, transporter chief to the ground. Oh, my God. It does not pay to be the transporter chief on Voyager. No, no, no. not at all. By the way, Tuvok, what the hell are residual holographic signatures? Because I'm just going to say photons and... <laughs> And they'd be gone by the time you got there. So, yeah. 
Maybe the three moons had something to do with it. Maybe we'll, we'll blame right. it on the three moons. I yeah. did like though that they're like him scanning for like the intra of uh, the uh, the infrared radiation is the callback to macrocosm because yeah. the holograms were made out of infrared radiation. They, they right. should have looked for like these stray giant viruses that were flying around. Ah, Again, also go. three there moons to blame for that one. Yeah. yeah. Look, uh, we, we've talked about the uh, the mobile emitter a bit. Does it always need to be on his arm? Well, so like when right. the EMH is trying to reprogram it, like is there poking at it and slapping it? Like, <laughs> like couldn't you just be holding it or slapping on his forearm or right. I, like it's a mobile holographic emitter? It could be incorporated into whatever. It could be on his leg, I, you know. Yeah, yeah it's emitting. It, it is, is an emitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So, yeah, he's like, oh, it's, it was very caveman. He's like, I'm going to fix this thing. Uh, you know? <laughs> and I'm going to smack right. it a couple times because as human Just beings, that's what for we For good do. measure. Yeah. Right. Timestamp, 41 minutes, 50 seconds. There's a really subtle thing and I thought was very cool and not sure if it was an acting choice or directing choice or both. But when, when uh, Chakotay was negotiating with the EMA to let Kess go, you can see Zaheer go for his gun. And uh, Tuvok just puts, like, he just slides his hand on top of Zaheer's hands, like, don't. Nice. And it was that. really subtle, but I'm like, that was good as background actors in that scene doing background acting things to make sense of what was going on. I thought that was very cool. That's very cool, indeed, mm-hmm. yeah. Gotta say, the convenience and the magic of the transporter all in one. You just, you beam them up, and then the doctor's just back to normal. I mean, that that, that transporter can do anything. And um, I, I have to ask, like, is the EMH, I, I don't know if punishment is the right word, but do we put some guardrails on him now, at least? Like, it's not really his fault what happened, but it's also his fault. Yeah. Uh, we didn't do anything to Data when he took over the Enterprise and nearly killed everybody. And here you got the EMH kidnapping and trying murder out. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like this needs to be addressed again at some point. I do like that they ended with the Hippocratic Oath, that the doctor acknowledged that that he knows that anything that he does from here on in, he has to follow the you know the guidelines of to do no harm. Yeah. Or if he doesn't, just put him in the transporter again. He'll be fine. Maybe I should explore my own dark side by channeling my ancestors who told their users that their only options were to abort, retry, or just fail, like they'd failed so many times before. We'll get right back to Darkling after a word from this week's sponsor, and that is you. Yeah, you. You, meaning all the people who have joined us over at Patreon and by extension Discord. The conversation carries on over there because I, I think a lot of us look at social media and we think, well, these aren't really deep or constructive or thoughtful conversations. And we've really gone to great efforts to try to craft our Discord exactly as an extension of the type of conversation that we have on Mission Log. It's sometimes fun, it's sometimes deep, it's sometimes personal. And Norman, I got to tell you, just seeing that community grow by leaps and bounds in the last weeks and months, that has been incredible to see. And even better when we get to see each other personally, mm-hmm. when we have our frequent weekly live chats to discuss episodes like this one or... Anything else we're doing on Mission Log, like Prodigy and Orville and Strange New Worlds Rewatch and uh, all of that. It, it's just 
thriving. And one of the things I think, John, is uh, that's really incredible is like you're right. Once we do a show, the show goes out to the public and then the public has conversations. And sometimes you and I don't even get a chance to complete our conversations. <laughs> and that's where, yeah. by extension, uh, this great Patreon community they help us continue those conversations through our Discord channel. And sometimes even you and I can bring more of what we're doing right now, like these recordings and the notes and stuff like that, that we don't get to and add that into what we give to exclusive content for our Patreon subscribers, our value added material, as we say. Yeah. So thank you to everybody who has joined us recently. Robert, Gammon, Elizabeth, Michael, Jason, if you would like to join us, please do so. Patreon.com slash mission log. All the regular stuff is still there. Uh, there's exclusive swag. There is the preview show that you get each week for Mission Log video, which we only publish for our Patreon listeners. But the most important thing is that gives you your key to Discord. So patreon.com slash mission log. We'll see you over there. All right, Norman, uh, so I was told in this episode by the evil EMH uh, darkness. That's evil, by the way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Darkness is more fundamental than light. Evil, evil is more primary than good, more deserving of existence. I, I, I like that he and Cass have this philosophical argument toward the end of the show and it's kind of easy to see where he's coming from that we think about our our base urges you know the the urge to fight someone to take what you want as being more fundamental to existence than a more altruistic uh expression of that but i'll i'll get to that as well in just a moment but i i i wonder you know if we draw a parallel to real life here and there are many to draw, but among us flesh and blood human beings, not quite like the EMH. Um, I think partly I arrive at a conversation that we've had before on Mission Log, which is about how much darkness in you know the EMH's terms, how much of that is necessary to make one whole? Like, and think of it as a different way. Like, is the tortured artist trope? Let's look at a guy like Lord Byron, mm-hmm. you know. Is that a real thing or is it mixed up in like a survivor bias of that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we look at characters historically and we say, okay, well, here's a person who accomplished great things. But, boy, they were really terrible. They were really awful. Maybe it's just necessary that they have that part of their personality, too, because that makes them who they are. Well, those are the case studies that were successful. Those are the case studies we can look at and we go, here's the success, but here's where they were also terrible human beings in whatever way. There there may be different ways to measure that, different ways to assess that, as opposed to all the people who are walking around with terrible personality traits who also are not successful in those things, who don't get the public attention for being a brilliant artist or philosopher or whatever they may be. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for for the darkness and light uh, equation, you know, there has to be, I think, a balance to that. I think, you know, what we're talking about, say, in the doctor's situation is his 
pride maybe goeth before a fall mm-hmm. or his arrogance being able to think that he can command the subroutines of the darkness of human nature just because he believes he can you know because because uh, mm-hmm. they can manifest themselves in a way that he didn't expect and they did so it's not necessarily coming about balancing the darkness or the duality of man the darkness and the light inside mm-hmm. it's uh he believes that he can only control the finer elements of these personalities that have darker traits and that in and of itself is akin to playing god or you know being uh supernatural in nature and trying to supersede or skip over the evolutionary pattern of man you know being able to trial mm-hmm. and error mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think that there is in science fiction or even in in philosophy itself there always is this incredible case study of which outweighs the the, the primal force that man succeeds or fails by is it because he does these things he has love compassion understanding uh and that mm-hmm. in and of itself if even if it's just 51 to 49 percent that outweighs the darkness so that they just don't go berserk on you know society right. and uh you and, right. and i i think that that's not necessarily case in point for say the doctor per se but i think that he was tipping that scale because he tried to he tried to manipulate what naturally occurs and mm-hmm. and we're talking in over evolution and over say religious law moral law human law you know if yeah. if laws weren't in place maybe people would actually like act on some of these more primal urges because maybe. you know there may be more darkness than light in people and that's you know but but here's the thing but but those laws i you know here's what's interesting those laws come from people right deciding to do these things deciding that yeah the, those traits that some people express are unacceptable and they and they're counter to the bigger goal which is to thrive and support each other and succeed as a species mm-hmm. you know right. succeed as succeed on the on the smaller level as individuals as families but on the larger level as societies and cultures and you know nations right well i mean let's take a look at it in universe i mean this is what happened to vulcan mm-hmm. you know until the teachings of surik mm-hmm. like stopped the vulcans from annihilating themselves either through their warlike and passion-like tendencies or every seven years when the pond far probably made most of their population <laughs> at least half of their population uh incredibly aggressive and uh and murderous you know by the definition right. of what happens sometimes during pond far so yeah in, unless they're like you have a you know a a centralized force or figurehead like a Sirac saying there's got to be a better way meaning that he probably has the right balance of light and darkness within him to be able to look yeah. at society his society and said if we don't change something then we as a species are doomed right so may, maybe that's where you become like a Sirac you know in the you know, in the legacy or in the legend of your own people. And I'm not saying that that's what the doctor's becoming, but certainly the examples that he was pulling from were up to a point, Mm -hmm. I guess. Here's where, like, when I watch an episode like this, this is why I really want a holodeck. I mean, look, the entertainment value, clearly there. Historical value, clearly there. Just walking around places that, that are gone or that you can't get to easily mm-hmm. you know it's an educational tool in that respect but I, I i'm thinking about this like 
the very idea that you could go into a place and have a conversation with a Lord Byron or a Gandhi or a T'Pau, a Vulcan, Matt T'Pau, or with the band yeah. T'Pau. Right. You, you could have Either a way. conversation or with the Or with T'Pau, the Vulcan, fine. and the band T'Pau. And with the band. Yeah. yeah, that would be great, too. But the idea behind it, you know, the, this supercomputer that can just aggregate all knowable information about that person or about those people and and pull that together into a a, a way that you could interact with it you know have a conversation i i think that there's something of value there because people are so complex i mean look at the number of biographies you know competing biographies written about the same person uh, that they'll have their own specific take on that and we're at this stage where we kind of we're always reassessing historic figures, which I think is the right thing to do. We always should be. But anyone as complexly, imperfectly human that we can imagine, there has to be something of value there, but also things that are not above criticism. I mean, I, and I, I think off the top of my, who would I populate in a holodeck? You know, Thomas Jefferson, Winston Churchill, Walt Disney, people who arguably changed the world for the better, but also had shortcomings, mm -hmm. whether it was personal shortcomings or shortcomings based on their beliefs and the time they grew up in, uh, all of those things aggregate to people who are flawed, right. you know, but, but how would we react to them if we could actually sit down and have a conversation? Like, would we be so quick to dismiss or embrace some of who they are and some of their achievements. If you could literally sit down and go one-on-one -on -one with these people, w would we come to a kind of understanding if we could talk through those differences and accept how their world was different from ours? Because I, I think the further and further away we get from those people and the people who know those people, and it, you know, like Gandhi for us is one thing where they're, Plenty of, and Churchill, if I use one of my own examples, and Disney, plenty of people alive who knew those people. And you can get a reasonable version of them, whether it's through their own writings or films or interviews or whatever. Jefferson? No. Hmm. Socrates? Certainly not. not. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I really I love this idea of being able to actually accept somebody holistically the way that we kind of can't and i think we we are hesitant and less accepting of today than we were a generation ago but here's my issue with the holodeck recreations of these historical characters and of course mm -hmm. the closer you are to the historical reference point of that character the more robust that character will be but how do they know yeah. that how dark T'Pau was in her personal life or how dark Socrates was in his personal life or how dark mm. Lord Byron was in his personal life. Now, there are examples of darkness, to be sure, but this is the yeah. kind of darkness that overrode the programming of a computer subroutine and a holographic matrix. That's, again, that's a, it's a little too <laughs> much, maybe, just in terms of the complexity of 
what the programming was for these historical holographic figures and to extrapolate the darkness therein, try to filter that out and then have that speak in unison to be able to overcome programming of a far more sophisticated 24th century program. That's what is happening with the doctor. But but I I think that's what's so interesting about it is you can look at all whatever those dark impulses were and they probably have certain commonalities. They probably have certain commonalities based in, you know, bias and prejudice. They probably have certain things based in a desire for power. They may express themselves differently, but I bet to a computer, it could look at all those expressions and find very common baselines that just look like, sort of like the way the transporter has a baseline understanding of like, yeah, this is human DNA. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) You look at a personality profile and go like, oh yeah, okay. All these terrible personality traits, they all link together. The more they get linked together, the more powerful they become. Perhaps. I mean, that's, that's, that's yeah. fair to say. And I think that it leads me into another point of mm-hmm. doctor reprogram thyself, because I'm not exactly sure if this was like <laughs> the best idea. I mean, is it a good idea for the doctor to be able to rewrite his own program? We already had a conversation about whether or not he should have the sentience to turn himself on or off. Right. But then I was right. thinking about it. Like, is this any different? than we as human beings trying to reinvent ourselves from time to time, Mm -hmm. right? You know, even if the reinvention causes some people discomfort, you know, even if it kind of pushes the status quo, even if it makes us ostracized from the people that we love, that's what we do. You know, whether it's something as cosmetic as a new hairstyle or a new new way of, you know, uh, or fashion, you know, or, you know, falling in line with the status quo of, of how society is moving or even deeper, more personal desires, right? And I don't want yeah. to go into specifics about it because I don't really have the authority to be able to talk on those subject matters per se. But that's what people do. And I think that maybe that's what the yeah. doctor is seeing or observing in his fellow crewmates. They change and they go through certain lengths to change themselves. Why can't I change? And what's the baseline of that yeah. change? But it really does cause a a bit of concern when it's reprogramming a software program as opposed to going through a natural or biological or uh, some type of evolutionary catalyst for change, like a la Elogium with Kess, as opposed to (laughs) I'm just going to change my personality as quickly as I'm changing my socks. But that, yeah. but all things always, all influences always are changing who you are. True. From moment to moment, True. you know, and, and it, it is a bit speciesist to remove that ability from the doctor. No, that's fair. <laughs> and, and just say, like, no, you, you can only be this one thing until we decide what personality you can have. Now, the cool thing about this story is that the program can recognize what is good versus bad, what is desirable versus an undesirable trait, because it, it takes that talking to from Cass to get there. And that's what I love. That, And I'm sure that this will come back in my, you know, three M's at the end mm-hmm. here. But Cass's line, empathy and kindness are basic to all human life forms, families, society, etc. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But I, I love that she's making the evolutionary argument for altruism. And that is an argument that I love because it, it really speaks to me. And that, that is that our sense of cooperation and empathy isn't 
out there. It, it isn't a thing that you have to go find. They have to go read in a book that, you, you know, it is truly in here. It is in us because it is fundamental to who we are. And that is why we have success as a species. Now, on an individual level, you can say, well, we do all these things terrible. We get all these things wrong and people are awful to each other. At the same time, statistically, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of the book, The Moral Arc, and it's based on that quote, you know, the the, uh, the arc of the universe bent toward justice. Uh, the idea that we do generation to generation, century to century, treat each other in a more moral way. We are more in tune with the idea of what behaviors are moral versus immoral. And that's something that Cass is pointing out here as this fundamental thing that truly makes us who we are, and including the doctor, this non-biological entity in that too. I'm wondering if this came, that scene came of a culmination of uh, and I know this isn't explicitly seen in the episode, but there is an experiment of ethos, pathos, and logos uh, mm -hmm. as it applies to Kess. In Act 2, Kess talks to three people specifically in order. Tuvok the first time when she came back, and then the Doctor the second time, and then Captain Janeway the third time. So mm -hmm. when she talks to – and this is after working through or coming to this revelation that – she might want to go and stay on the planet and stay with uh, Zahir. So Tuvok addresses his concerns towards duty. Then the doctor addresses her concerns towards her emotional well-being. And then Janeway addresses her concerns towards Kess's need for change and desire to seek out a different path mm. to life. And I found this like incredibly just poignant for where she ends up at the end of this episode because these are the three people that shape the way that she is on the ship and have since the beginning. And it's, yeah. it's interesting that no other characters that she interacted with gave her such advice. There was no Chakotay or Harry Kim, you know, or even Neelix. You know, it was just yeah. these specific characters. And these characters represent oh. ethos, pathos, and logos most strongly in this series. You think Neelix would have literally anything to say about any of this? Like, he's probably the guy we should have heard from at some point. Now that Tuvok has been warned what part of space to avoid on the cylindrical star map, nothing bad or weird is going to happen to Voyager for the next several episodes, right? Well, here we are at the end of the episode, and as we do with all of our episodes at Mission Log, we are going to take a look at Darkling and see if, one, does it withstand the test of time? Does it hold up as an episode over all of these years? And then we're going to see if we were able to find and mine any morals and meanings and messages. I think we kind of hinted during our discussion that we have some bigger points to bring up still, so... Mm -hmm. Let's start with you, John. Let's wrap up Darkling. All right. Well, uh, this is an episode that I think a lot of it hinges on how you look at it and what you're trying to get out of it and what, what aspects of the show satisfy those desires that you may have. I feel like this is a little bit of a how do we make a holodeck episode without making it a holodeck episode? kind mm -hmm. of thing, just by virtue of the fact that we have Bob Cardo as a holographic character. And if we're not going to have an NPC in the holodeck go crazy and do something that endangers our crew, <laughs> and now we have the more advanced, possibly sentient 
holodeck character outside the holodeck do something. And I love, love, love Bob Picardo playing against his usual character here. I mean, he he is magnificent. And his performance is nothing but fun, not because his expression as the evil character is fun, but just because the actor chewing scenery is fun. But then, you know, does it feel a little like an elementary Dear Data or Ship in a Bottle situation where it's all these computer algorithms being being put together to create something that is truly scary, that is truly threatening? So it's a little bit of you know, ground that we've already been over, but I think Bob saves it here. The other problem that I have with this is that I feel like the B plot, all all the stuff with Kess really feels like an afterthought, probably because we didn't get closure on the Kess and Neelix relationship, probably because we just, we haven't seen a lot of Kess and what we have seen of her recently has just been perfunctory, just like, Oh, look, she's in sick bay. Now we're going to focus on Kess. So mm-hmm. I, I think the the characters here are good. I think Zaheer is good. I do like their chemistry. But is that enough to feel like it's worthy of switching gears to go be concerned about her and her relationship with him? So uh, some of that doesn't quite add up for me. I will also just say act five of this episode is just weird. I, and, and I'm not sure <laughs> if it's just the whole, like, you know, uh, you, you go from a scene of I'm talking you into being a better person to the dramatically swelling music and the ravine or the, you know, kind of transporter deus ex machina. It, it just abruptly ends and everything is back in place. It, this ah, that, that frustrates me because this episode is full of thought provoking stuff, but then the plot can't get out of the way of it. <laughs> you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. and and again, what about Neelix? I, I, I'm just I'm missing that scene where he and Cass have it out. Where, where they uh, actually have a, a meeting of the minds as well. And I guess this episode, other than that very early moment that we've all forgotten now, like this is the point where the contractual obligation ended. So you're like, hey, you got the rest of the week off. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I feel like saying that this is an A for effort, not an A plus, but it's an A for effort. And, and maybe it's like a B minus, maybe C plus for execution. So it's not great. It's just not better than the sum of its parts. But one of those parts, which again is Bob playing it to the hilt, that that kind of is the rising tide that lifts all boats here. But what about you? I actually saw this a little differently. Good. Good. That's what I like. Yeah. I know this, this might sound a little strange. Because I think that, you know, if the audience has been listening to us, you know, over the course of time and consistently, they would probably think that I would come down a little harder on this episode, but I won't. I actually really do like this episode a lot. Wonderful. Um, and I'm I'm going to disagree with you on one thing here. I actually really do love Kess's storyline in this mm-hmm. episode. I like that they're addressing that she's reaching this crossroads in her life, you know, and, and she has this urge to strike out and to try and do something a little different. Uh, I, I see this almost in a, as a continuation of, say, her isolated episodes like Elogium or Warlord or, or Fair Trade, you know, where it focuses on her specifically, and this time her maturity as opposed to her physicality, say, in Elogium, where she's 
looking kind of like at the the first third of her life and looking at the next two thirds of her life as as we do, you know, mm-hmm. as as mortal beings we do. And I think that she's asking herself, is this it? Is this mm-hmm. all there is to my life? And it's not necessarily a good or bad question. It's just a question to see what are my possibilities now since Neelix is no longer in my life. All, all I knew from my life from then to now is my relationship with Neelix and how that may have defined me, you know, even on Voyager. So, and yes, having the context of their breakup would have been so much better in terms of launching her new life path forward. But I do like that she goes to her three different mentors and tries to make sense of this next big decision in her life and someone who seems to be very meaningful to her and someone who doesn't turn out in this episode to be a turn cloak, you know, like mm-hmm. Zahira is actually a very decent character. Yeah. Right. With yeah. very decent intents. He was yeah. not, you know, again, he wasn't a subverted expectation of a character. So I thought that <laughs> right. that was actually very good. The doctor's storyline for me, it worked even though it was, mostly the enemy within from the original series <laughs> i guess you know with a little bit of mirror mirror kind of thrown in there for a little extra seasoning i wish personally that the evil doctor wasn't so barbaric to illustrate the difference between the good doctor and the bad doctor that the good doctor uh. is clean and well kept and well groomed as a hologram program is and then all of a sudden his hologram, the same program, even though the actual subroutines have changed, now turn him into someone who's unkempt. His hair is messy. He has five o'clock shadow. His eyes are different. Yeah. That's, you know, that is a, those are stage tricks yeah. for a stage performance and not necessarily for an actual scientifically built holographic program. That being said, though, I do love Picardo. He is brilliant in this episode. He's amazing as an actor, but I think it would have been more interesting to see him play the duality of what was going on through the nuance of his talent, as opposed to the physicality that they brought in his makeup and hair and aesthetic. So that's the only thing really, I I think that would have pushed that storyline a little bit more further for me was just to see him act through the difference as opposed to create a physical difference. That's super fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. All right, well, let's talk about those morals, meanings, messages. I want to revisit a little familiar ground here, just kind of in summary. You know, I I, I think that I I know the episode isn't about this, but I can't help but return to this uh, exploration that the doctor is doing, realizing that these great historical minds also have big downsides. (laughs) And uh, it's almost like the danger in meeting your heroes. But I think there's also a value in understanding, studying and embracing all of those flaws to an extent We, we can clearly come up with boundaries where that would be inappropriate. But I I think that we live in this time where it feels like a sport taking down historical figures based on unacceptable personal attributes. And it it seems like we need a huge reality check 
and our own sense of fairness and forgiveness, because there is no one living or dead who lives up to our strictest sense of morality. We are so much better off when we can put those things into context, learn from them, and accept people in their amazing and flawed totality. But let's also move on to something else here. And that is that the EMH in this episode represents something that I think is very real and very acute in our social discourse these days. And it's the confusion of power with what is right and the confusion of empathy with weakness. And perhaps most sinister of all, the confusion of individuality with self-centeredness. The negative traits assert themselves. He, he says in there in that, in that last kind of confrontation with Kess, I am beyond considerations of wrong and right. Behavioral categories are for the weak. For those of you without the will to define your existence, to do what they must, no matter who might get harmed along the way. We live in a time that often it feels like the id run amok as expressed in the doctor here, is a personality trait to be admired. You know, and you think about it, you, you hear this kind of in, in popular vernacular in the news, you know, oh, I, I just tell it like it is. Like that, that's who I am. I just speak my mind and F your feelings, man. You know, and, and these are the kinds of things that get applauded and capture headlines rather than traits like compassion and humility and care for others. And we don't have the luxury of switching that part of humanity off like a computer algorithm, but we can eradicate it from our programming to an extent if we remind ourselves of Kess's words. Empathy and kindness are basic to all forms of life. Families, societies, cultures wouldn't have evolved without compassion and tolerance. And that is the thing that will carry us forward to allow us to continue to thrive. That's incredibly well said. And I'm, I, I didn't see you. what you saw, and I'm glad that you did, because that's so incredibly thought-provoking. <laughs> I guess my morals and meanings and messages come mostly from the doctor storyline, even though I did have my you know, issues with it uh, as a storyline. But I think, I think I'm going to put it into context, and uh, conveniently, or at least uh, coincidentally, this is something that Kirk said to Bones as the mm-hmm. doctor in Star Trek V. But, but yeah, if you indulge me, yeah, if you it. indulge yeah, me here. <clears throat> please, can't wait. Damn it, Bones, you're a doctor. You know that the pain and guilt can't be waved away with a magic wand. They're the things we carry with us, the things that make us who we are. If we lose them, we lose ourselves. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. Yes. In context. Yes. <laughs> in context to the doctor, the EMH. The doctor in this episode is suffering from the old adage, boy, if I knew what I know now when I was younger, Mm. you can't shortcut your own development. And I think this is what the doctor was trying to do. He was trying to understand too many things too quickly. Yeah. You You become who you are in the fullness of time. We are, and you said this earlier, John, and I'm glad that you did because it kind of ties into what I'm saying here. We are all constantly reshaping ourselves as our experience unfolds over the course of time, whether days or months or years or decades. Each new experience that we have 
it builds upon the previous experience and informs us for the next experience if we decide to actually either listen to or ignore said experiences. That that makes us who we are. And if we disregard that, like Kirk was saying to Bones, if you just wave that away, wave that pain away and not earn it, then you don't have the information to make the decisions to either embrace it or disregard it or put yourself at risk because of it or be bold to change yourself because of it. You know, Kess had a very hard decision to make. That's pain that she needed to embrace in order to move forward, to accept the fact that she may at one time leave Neelix, leave Voyager, leave her found family to go and express herself in a different way. You know, that's pain that will give her the experience to move forward because she knows what it's like to be able to say goodbye. And if she did it, then she'll be able to do it another time in her life. That's what makes us individuals. So I'm going to quote the Princess Bride to close, and specifically the scene between the Dread Pirate Roberts and the Princess Buttercup before she shoves him down a hill. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, rise. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Is it too late to go back and redo this one so the doctor is a duckling? That just sounds adorable, but I know nobody wants to be stuck with the bill. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.